I have an extra special guest this week. His name is Rick Wilson. He is a Republican political strategist, media consultant, and author who has produced numerous television commercials uh, for governors, Senate candidates, super PACs, corporations. He helped campaign for Connie Mack for the Florida 1988 uh, Senate campaign. He was George H.W. Bush's field director in Florida. He was the presidential appointee to the Department of Defense under Dick Cheney. Uh, he created a number of award-winning ads for Rudolph Giuliani uh, in the 1997 mayoral election. Uh, also campaigned for Giuliani for the 2000 Senate seat, and he is the author of Everything Trump Touches Dies, A Republican Strategist Gets Real About the Worst President Ever. Rick Wilson, welcome to Bloomberg. Well, thank you, Barry. I appreciate that. Uh, I've been looking forward to this, but I got to ask you, what's your beef with Trump? He, he's making America great again. Well, that's a great catchphrase, Barry, but it's also at variance with a lot of the things that, that I, as a conservative, believe in. Okay, uh, limiting, give, us, give us some examples. Limiting the size of government. Engaging in a, in a trade war that is ultimately going to end, as all trade wars do, with a complete economic and political disaster. But look, Donald Trump isn't a conservative in the traditional way. He's more of a statist, more of an authoritarian. Mm -hmm. And it's definitely some stuff that I have a lot of issues with as a conservative. There's nothing that Donald Trump's character has ever indicated that he, you know, has any of the, the traits of moral probity or personal responsibility or accountability or integrity. And so there were a lot of these reasons that I thought that Trump would be a, a damaging force in the country, not only for conservatism, but for our economy and for our system of government. And I've been I've been proven pretty consistently right on this over the last uh, two years. I have to admit, I was pretty shocked. Uh, I'm a lifelong New Yorker. Everybody in New York kind of knows of what Trump's course. gig is. It's no big surprise. Of course. We all either know someone who's worked with him or been involved with one of his properties or, or been sued by him. And um, I was shocked at how easily the right wing just bought his line when it was clearly nonsense. You know, uh, uh, at least about being sure. a, a conservative, a fiscal conservative, mm, et cetera. Exactly. You know, and, and my New York experience started in 97 working for Rudy in the first in the reelection campaign. And then I was here in City Hall for about a year working at, as this advisor and then uh, on the campaign against Hillary. So I got enough of a taste of New York at that point to get so where people read Donald Trump and how they scanned him. Mm -hmm. And it was always like, yeah, the guy's kind of a whatever, but, you know, we'll, we'll, we'll throw him some parking passes once in a while. But right. and his ascent politically from people here and, and other folks that have done business with him and that I've known in Florida and elsewhere, they were always stunned. Like, how is how is anyone buying this con? How does anyone believe this guy? This BS is everybody knows he's bankrupt constantly. Everybody Multiple knows, times, right? Everybody knows that this guy's in debt up to his eyeballs, that this is all a, a, a character he's playing on TV and not right. the real guy. You know, all this idea that Trump is one of the wealthiest men in the world and he's an amazing businessman, a masterful negotiator, all these things. It's all BS. It's all crap. And they all knew it. And, and, and yeah. Then why jump on the Trump train? And, well, Was it just raw attraction to power and not a lot more than that? The, Trump identified something in the Republican base that they really wanted. They wanted someone who was so transgressive, who was going to blow up everything uh -huh. because there's a huge sense of inferiority in the Republican base. They, they really dislike 
the fact that the the educated elites and the Ivy League people, you know, quote unquote, look down on them. So, and that's been stoked over the years by Fox and by the right wing talk radio sure. circuit. And so those folks got this sense that Donald Trump was going to be uh, this, as I said, a transgressive and destructive force for the establishment, which they hate. They hate the establishment Republicans more than they hate Democrats. Huh. They, they have a greater anxiety about about their own party's internal quote unquote elites than they do about the Democrats. And so Trump activated that very brilliantly. And the and the Republican elected officials who followed along in his wake did it for two reasons. The first reason, and I would say about, you know, in the House there used to be a lot fewer today, a lot of those guys were just afraid of him. They're afraid of the Twitter feed. They're afraid of his followers. They're afraid of the crazy train. They're afraid of they're afraid of the people that Trump inspires. You write about that in Everything Trump Touches Dies, that there is a genuine fear amongst rank and file Republicans Absolutely. that if this guy comes after me on Twitter, my life is over. Yeah. And they 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 have a political fear that they'll be primaried by some nutcase. They right. have a, to their to their own right. Someone yeah, to their own to their own right, or, or or to the Trump zone from the Trump zone. They have a state-run media. There is a there is a deep sense that a lot of the the, the followers of Trump um, are the guys that are going to come to your town hall meeting and lose their minds with you. And I tell the story in the book of a guy who went to one of the first town hall meetings, and he was asked, "Are you going to support President 100 percent of the time?" And he says, well, I want to. I'm a Republican. I, I hope we can agree on, on a lot of things. But, you know, I'm going to stand not up. taking a blind loyalty. I'm going to stand of... up for my district first. Right. It's like, no, no. Are you going to support Mr. Trump 100 percent of the time? And he says, no. Moves on. To the next question. By the time he gets off stage, his Facebook page is filled up with death threats. Right. His wife's business Facebook page is filled up with death threats. His Twitter feed is a mess. His kid's school is getting phone calls the next day. And it's because these seems people, appropriate. Yeah, it seems it seems like Balanced, a normal political measured, discourse, right? right? Um, but the, it comes down to this point where the vast majority of the members of the caucus are just afraid. They're afraid of what Trump's going to say or do. Um, there's a handful of them who are true believers. I mean, there are a few of these guys who really have all the Kool Aid. Devin they, Nunes is a perfect example. Well, Devin Nunes is a perfect example. Dana Rohrabacher, perfect. Well, you know, and we Dan, could discru- discuss the his his. District said, you're not putting your district first. Correct. You lost them out. And that is something that, you know, that is something that we saw in this in this election. Let's talk a little bit about the GOP. And there were so many questions that I had as as I was reading the book, the first of which was, what was the response from your fellow um, Republicans when you pretty much declared, hey, this guy is not a Republican. He's an imposter. And he will destroy the party if you make him your nominee. There had to be some pretty fierce pushback. Uh, in the beginning, not at all. Really? In the beginning, it was, you're absolutely right. We're all in this together. And one by one, they fell to the conformity of D.C., which is a corporate town. Right. And a lot of them were dependent on work from the RNC or the NRCC or the Senate Committee or the Governor's Association. And so they slowly... You know, shut their mouths, sat down, made their peace with the Trump world. Right. And look, I had had a very successful career. I'd done super PAC work for the last 10 years. Um, I've done campaigns in 38 states. I've been to the rodeo. I wasn't really, you know, subject to a lot of the same motivations that they were. 
of you know keeping the keeping the mortgage payments up on their five million dollar homes in Georgetown, right? Right. So uh, I had a slightly different take on some of that, but it's also that that I've never tried to be one of the D.C. guys. Yeah, they were all centrist Republicans and and compassionate conservatives when George Bush was president. Right. And the minute the Tea Party won, they were all hair on fire libertarians. We were going to burn down the government, drown it in the bathtub, and and we were going to we were going to adhere to the Constitution strictly. That that sort of ethical um, flexibility. Yeah, I mean, is it that blatant? Is it that no, it's, obvious? It's, it, it, in D.C., it's not even just that obvious. Part of the trick for a lot of these people was they basically had to hire Trump people to make good with the Trump family uh-huh. and the Trump organization. A lot of these people in D.C. who hated Donald Trump with the fire of a million sons to keep their RNC contracts, suddenly they were hiring all these you know cats and dogs that wandered in from the Trump world who couldn't have gotten a job at a Burger King otherwise – and pretending that this was that, that it, they had always been Trump. They had always been all, all about MAGA. So when did the pushback to you start in earnest? When did you really start to have uh, the GOP uh, rank and file turn on you? Well, on the front end, a lot of them have, said, have had to say publicly, well, we're not working with Rick anymore. Um, a lot of them still talk to me. Uh, and I have taken on this weird role as like a father confessor to some of these Republicans. For the last two years, they'll call me up and say, I hate him. I hate him so much. I can't stand this guy. He's destroying the country. And the next day, they're sitting around the cabinet off the cabinet room table or they're wearing a red hat at a rally right. because they're just afraid. They, so they won't even vote against them. No, no. They, they, they're, the fear defines them. And this desire to please his base defines them these days. And so, look, once he got the nomination, I was definitely out of the... Uh, out of the family picnic list for a while. Mm-hmm. But I have spent the last two years speaking freely and 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 making a critique of Trump from the right. And honestly, I'm liberated. You don't have especially kind things to say about Reince in the book. I don't because he had every opportunity to pull this pull the circuit breakers on Trump. Early. Way early. early. Yeah. Why early. didn't he? I I think in many ways he feared that Donald Trump would leave the party, quote unquote. Go to the Democrats? No, and run as an independent. Oh. And therefore would tap off a small but meaningful percentage in enough states that Hillary would be ensured to win. Mm-hmm. That, was, that was what one of his advisors you know, said to me at the time. And is, I said- Is that an unreasonable position? It seems fairly logical. Well, the thing about it is Donald Trump at that point would not be able to raise money from the Republican sucker base who loved right. him. He would have had to actually spend his own money for real. And we know he didn't want to do that. He never does. He doesn't have any money to spend. So my pet thesis about Trump this whole time has been 2012 was a phenomenal branding opportunity for him. He ran, he raised his profile. Everything he did financially after that was a big win for him. I looked at 2016 as he has no interest in Winning, he just wants to take all the free publicity and of accolades. course, and and the people inside Trump's campaign for the last month of the campaign. Oh, I can't wait till this is over. We're going to go have a big steak dinner. I got to tell you the crazy stories about this idiot. Right. And on election night, Steve Bannon, Reince Priebus, Kellyanne Conway, all the senior Trump staffers are calling every reporter in the country saying, it's his fault. It's her fault. It's their fault. They were already blaming they each other before the results were in. They were all, uh, this is at, at 445. I got a phone call from, wow. a, from a major national reporter who just said, I just got off the phone with one of the president's senior strategists 
who is today in the White House. And this person told me, oh, Bannon's an idiot and Wrights blew this up and they're just morons and the family are a bunch of greedy, you know, mafia people. This is a crime. This is a this is horrifying. And an hour and a half later, this person's on the stage waving and smiling because the night came out differently. They had no anticipation of winning at all. You, you could tell from the lack of lists of, of senior cabinet people, ambassadors, there's still hundreds of unfilled slots. It's two years later. Sure. Uh, take a look at the tax cuts. There's no rhyme or reason. That was a Paul Ryan joint. That wasn't a Donald right. Trump joint. He just cares about the victory is how I read it and not the policy details. He cares about the celebrity. Yes. And that, that's always been what motivates Trump. A friend of his, former friend, current friend, I'm not sure how you describe it, said to me one time, whatever makes him money, whatever puts him on the, in the papers that day, that's Donald Trump's entire world. Fame, money, and love. Those are the three motivations. I wouldn't say love. Him. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> I'm, I'm trying to put a nice spin on it. So let's talk about what the Democrats should be learning from this election cycle. What should they have done differently in 2016? And what should they be doing differently in 2020? Well, I think what they learned this year, to their credit, and it's taken a long road for them to get there, is to try to nominate people for Congress who fit the district. For years, though, they had this very top-down approach where no matter who you were, where you were running, you had to be the same Democrat that would be acceptable in Manhattan or San uh, Francisco. Upper West Side Democrats. Right. You had to be completely pro-choice. Uh, you had to be completely anti-gun. You had to be completely high purity taxes, test. purity tests, all the ideological monoculture that Republicans like me used to defeat Democrats all over the country. Uh-huh. What they learned is, yeah, you can, you can, you can name an Ocasio-Cortez in the Bronx, right? But you got to name a Connor Lamb in Pennsylvania, makes sense. In, the, in Western Pennsylvania, in rural areas, the Democrats finally seem to have started to learn that a little bit this year, uh, and some of their more progressive candidates, like Andrew Gillum in Florida, mm-hmm. who you know, for all that people were were very enamored of Andrew Gillum, he was very far to the left of where Florida is. Still came within one percent. Pretty shocking. It was a very impressive campaign. He's an impressive candidate. So a lot of the more progressive guys who felt like they still had to check all those boxes uh-huh. fell short. And the fact that 31 candidates that Donald Trump endorsed for the House, uh-huh. 28 of them lost. That's amazing. Yeah. The, the Trump, That's a pretty thorough repudiation yeah, of the, the president. The Trump, the Trump hit on House campaigns is something that will have a longer political run out than the fact that they won some Senate races in states that where the Democrats were disproportionately holding those seats. I mean, Claire McCaskill right. in Missouri, that is a state that has trended redder and redder. Indiana, deeper and deeper red all mm-hmm. the time. And so, you know, we're shocked that people, that, that, that Republicans won in North Dakota. Trump won the state by 32 points. Wow. So let's talk about some of the changes from the prior election. Uh, and you have to really begin with white, college-educated suburban women. How significant was that group for Democrats losing the White House in 2016? And how important was it to this uh, midterm election? About 55% of them voted for Donald Trump in 2016. Uh, uh, isn't that a kind of a shock? It I was, was surprised kind of a shock, by that. But more than Mitt Romney. But right away, right away, they realized there was an almost immediate oops, oops factor. And the tone and and things like Charlottesville and the immigration, you know, putting kids in cages, not a good look for suburban educated women. They're right. not really keen on it. So what you ended up with 
was they sort of got a separation in the fall of uh, in the winter of 2016. Uh-huh. And last night the divorce was final. They walked away from the Republican Party in enormous numbers. We're starting to pe- Did- to peel through the exit polls, but if you look in places like Pennsylvania, mm-hmm. the Democrats picked up four con- congressional seats there. Almost all of them in suburban areas where educated white women are the driving political force. So here's the long-term question. Mm-hmm. Did they walk away from Republicans or did they walk away from Trump? Is there a difference anymore? Well, I or, imagine there is. So uh, I am, I'm, I get uh, grief from friends when yeah. I say, I grew up a Jacob Javits Republican. Sure. Which is pretty middle of the road, balanced budget, low taxes, no overseas adventures like Vietnam or subsequently Iraq, and keep the government the hell out of the bedroom. Fairly moderate Republican with the best part of the libertarian side. I haven't changed. It's just that the hard right part of the party has taken over and really driven things. uh... See, there's a a real desire that we sort of pretended wasn't there for a long time. Mm -hmm. Not for limited government and, you know, the rule of law and low taxes and constitutional adherence. There's been an appetite for a sort of authoritarianism. Uh-huh. And a strong man, the bully character that's been fed for a long time by the sort of talk radio culture. Sure. And so we've ended up with, you know, what people wanted. They want the id of the Republican Party, not the superego. Huh, quite interesting. What keeps coming up all the time is that the country is so divided. And part of me feels, well, Congress is divided, but there are so many things that Americans seem to agree with. It almost feels like more and more of us are living in purple states than deeper red and deeper blue. And while there's certainly exceptions to New York and California and and, uh, Indiana and and, um, I was going to say Kansas, but I guess I can't say Kansas anymore. How accurate is that media depiction? Are we a nation divided or or are there more things that unite us than divide us? When it comes to politics, the siloing off of Americans has divided us profoundly. And what's the cause of that? The first is politics has become uh, a reality television show that we're all living in. Mm-hmm. And people every day um, are fed by the channels they like uh-huh. and by the news sources they like. And the internet has allowed people to silo themselves off and, into social groups. Look, we've become a disintermediate society. Uh-huh. We don't do the things we used to do as people. You know, we don't We don't have the the same sort of churches, social clubs, bowling leagues, baseball teams, all these things people used to do together. What's more important to them now is their Facebook group. Mm -hmm. And they interact more with people through social media uh, than they did before. And so part of that whole social media problem is that people want to portray this optimized image of themselves. Sure. and And to get attention in that attention economy of social media. And so they become flaming partisans they become something visible inside their social group and so so that's that's number one that's a that's a huge factor um so we clearly have a divide set up by media let's talk about some of the other more interesting issues of the modern electoral campaign sure the polling was under significant criticism in 2016 how how'd they do in 2018 a little better in some places Mm -hmm. but we are still at a point where We chase these polling stories that are built on uh, statistical models that don't reflect what the turnout model is going to look like. And which has to do with what? Is it enthusiasm or just not being able to reach people? It's not being able to reach people. It's a lot of there are a lot of mechanical and technical problems in Mm -hmm. polling now. You You used to have to make a couple thousand phone calls to get a decent sample. 
and now you have to make 10,000 phone calls to make to get a decent sample. People don't answer their cell phones from strange numbers that they don't Because you just assume it's uh, you, someone assume calling it's to lower your credit card right. you, bill. It's, it's spam. It's, it's, you know, healthcare enrollment is open. Yeah, everybody's gotten those calls, a million of them. Right. Landline phones are Going basically away. old people. Right. 65 plus. Or you, you know, you're, the chance of you owning a landline phone now, it means you are 60 or older. So there are a lot of technical difficulties in polling. We also are seeing some better analytics coming out using big, big data, data sure. using a lot of the things. I mean, look, it used to be you would take a random digit dial and mm-hmm. you'd call, you know, 600, 800 people and you'd ask them polling questions. Well, then you started making that dial list off of the voter file. So you're really talking to the people that are actually going to be there. Then you started modeling that and saying, okay, well, this guy's record says he's voted in two of the last three primaries. So we're going to definitely talk to him. He's a likely. And now we've got consumer data. We've got click data from the internet. We've mm-hmm. got, you know, your, we've got the ability to say, okay, this guy reads Bloomberg every day and he reads um, the Wall Street Journal every day and he looks at drugs three times a day. So we know he's an engaged person. Maybe this tax issue is the one we want to talk to him about. We'll ask him this question. So there's a lot of stuff that's giving us an enriched picture of who the voters are. Mm-hmm. Um, but the guys I work with, my pollsters, you know, I was saying to people, we're going to get 35 Democratic seats and two to three Republican pickups in the, in the Senate. That's pretty good. That's pretty, pretty good. We, we were pretty happy with it. I mean, we didn't feel like we missed a lot of big calls. And I've been, you know, as, as, a, as a purple state guy, as a guy who still is in Florida, uh, you know, I told people for weeks, it's going to be razor thin. It's Within 30, 1%, it's right? A, yeah, it's, a, it's, a, it's 30,000 votes. That's unbelievable. In a state of 20 million people. Let, let's talk about Florida, because what I haven't seen a lot of people discussing has been the proposition that passed, namely, if you're a felon, mm-hmm. um, and I think it's nonviolent It's felon? nonviolent felon. Nonviolent felon. Right. Uh, throughout most of America, you go to jail and you lose the right to vote. It's very right. much a disenfranchising um, situation that falls mm-hmm. disproportionately to, on African people Americans. of color. Absolutely. Now there's something like a million three or 1. a million. 1.4 million felons in Florida who now will have the right to vote in 2020. About, what does that do to the state's dynamics? Well, it's interesting. Look, I don't think every single one of those people is going to become a likely voter. Okay. I don't think every single one of those people is necessarily going to be a Democratic voter. However, I strongly supported this because I believe that, you know, our justice system, once your sentence is served, you've paid your debt. You've paid your debt to society and you and you get to move on. So I really think that in that with that particular amendment, it spoke to a fundamental sense of justice. It also spoke to something that in Florida we are one of the most punitive states in the country on the criminal justice side. Uh We put a lot of young black guys in jail. And we put a lot of them in jail for 1.01 ounces of marijuana. Ounces. Yeah. I mean, th- this is, this. Th- we, we put a lot of them in jail in the 90s during the, the hyper enforcement of the crack ep- epidemic. Mm-hmm. And I was part of the original right on crime movement where as conservatives, we, ha- we wanted to look at criminal justice in this country. And was this an application of state power that was disproportionate, particularly to African-American men? Sure. And it is. Mm-hmm. It's unarguable that that is the case. And as a conservative, I don't want the state to to have this punitive thing hanging over these these guys' heads for the, their, their entire lifespan. So I got an email last night from a guy who, uh, not an African-American, guy who had had a low-level white-collar thing. He goes, I'm going to get to vote for the first time in 22 years. And this is a guy who's been, who, who went to jail for two years and absolutely turned his life around in every conceivable way, mm-hmm. the straightest arrow in the universe. 
And I was like, that's where this thing comes in. You know, at some point, are we going to punish people forever and ever? And look, it is vastly disproportionate with African-American men. I don't know what the what the overall percentage is going to be of that 1.4, but I'm going to tell you it's probably close to 60%. Wow. So let's talk a little bit about voter suppression. There were all sorts of questions about voter suppression. I had no idea it was so prevalent in Texas. I read a big article, I think it was in The Atlantic, uh, but we have to talk about Georgia. What, what took place in Georgia? Uh, somebody tweeted... If this was a foreign country, the U.S. would be filing yeah, that complaints. Article about from this. the Atlantic. Yeah, uh, I will say this: the things that were coming out of Georgia on election night shocked me, and and Brian Kemp's you know self interest in the case of I'm going to run an enforcement operation to make that sure benefits that, myself to make sure that I win this race. That does strike me as a, has as a little smell of the third world around. Sure. It. So so is this a, a viable issue for? The no. Democrats to raise broadly they, that they we can, should expand voting rights to everybody. They can raise it. They can raise it, but it's not a cutting political issue. Mm-hmm. It's a boutique issue. And what I would do if I were the Democrats is make sure that we were they were litigating the hell out of it, uh-huh. which they they need to. Um, and I would if I were if I were the Democrats in in a lot of these states, I would make sure that that they do more voter training and education. So that people know their rights. I mean, people being told, oh, sorry, polls are closed now. You're standing in line. The courts have said time and time and time again that once you're at a polling place and in line, and you're in line, you get to vote. Easy lift. Uh-huh. But a lot of people don't know that. Huh. Um, Republicans have been very good at educating their voters to get out early, to vote absentee, to vote, to do early voting. Democrats need to do the same thing because it's harder to do it. It's harder to spread out a suppression effort over a week or two weeks of early voting than it is to do shenanigans on Election Day. We have been speaking with Rick Wilson. He is the author of the New York Times best-selling book, Everything Trump Touches Dies. If you enjoy this conversation, be sure and check out the podcast extras, where we keep the tape rolling and continue discussing all things electoral-related. You can find that wherever your finer podcasts are sold, iTunes, Overcast, Stitcher, or Bloomberg.com. We love your comments, feedback, and suggestions. Write to us at MIB podcast at Bloomberg.net. You can check out my daily column on Bloomberg.com slash opinion. Follow me on Twitter at Ritholtz. I'm Barry Ritholtz. You're listening to Masters in Business on Bloomberg Radio. Welcome to the podcast. Rick, thank you so much for doing this. I have to tell you, I'm like two thirds of the way through the book and it's really hilarious. You have not only a wonderful writing style, but a um, vicious wit. I'm glad I never ran a campaign on the other side of you, because uh, you seem to have the ability to pull out the um, dagger and not only stick it in, but twist it. Let's talk about some of the things that you mentioned in the book that I find absolutely fascinating. And I have to begin with the tale of uh, congratulations, what to expect when you're going to work in the Trump <laughs> White House, a tale in five pieces. It's ironic, but everything I read in that list, you can name a dozen people who sure. must have gone through that. It's pretty brutal. Um, what is it about Trump that just basically uses people and throws them away, and yet there's still a line of people Willing to get fed into the the maw of the machine. Uh, well, 
I'm going to disagree with you on, on the last part, but, but I'll loop back to that. Trump is a bad manager. Mm-hmm. He's a bad leader. He's a bad person. And he's a bad president. How do you really feel? I don't know. You know, I, 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 you I, get I, I tend to soft pedal right. a little bit, right? Right. But the folks that go to work for this guy. I mean, they, they all get they all get demolished. They they are every single person that goes into the White House loses their soul, their reputation, their ability I mean, to stand Tillerson, up straight. That, that's just a shocking. Yeah, there are there are, there are people that everyone thought would be fine, like Nikki Haley. She's going to be fine. She's worn out. She ran away. Who because, wrote Who wrote the anonymous letter? You have any idea? I have an idea, but um, you're going to keep it. To but yourself. I'm going to keep it to myself for now because. If I if it is who I think it is, it's actually somebody who's who's pretty senior, okay, and uh, and 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 is uh, not not completely bought in. You don't want to you don't want to out. Them. I don't want to out them. Yeah, but I will say this: the 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 story I told there, the the what to expect when you're working for Trump story. It's a mildly fictionalized version of what we've observed over time, and it's also something that you know. Guys that I knew who had done business with him here and in Florida mm-hmm. told the same story. Oh, These no, no, yahoos no. that go into work for Trump and he promises them, you're going to be a billionaire too and it's going to be great and we're all going to be driving Lamborghinis and and they bust their ass for a few years. They do the, one of these projects for him. And then they and, don't get paid. And they get, they get shafted. Right. It's I mean, amazing. It, it, when that story came out that there were 3,000 pending litigations yeah. from contractors who yeah. want to get paid, yeah. I, I, heard, I, I heard a wonderful story of a guy – um, I have a friend who worked in his legal department okay. briefly right. and went back to a firm, said mm-hmm. it's just insane. Um, th- they needed this guy to get a certificate of occupancy. And he mm-hmm. basically said, nope, you could sue me, you could do what you want, you will not get a CEO, you could shut this whole project down. Every day, what you owe me goes up. There's interest and penalties. My advice to you is to pay this tomorrow. And other than that guy, I don't know anybody who's been in that sort of dispute- right. And actually got paid. And yet people continue to line up, although you're going to push back on that. I will push back on that because Trump has had so much difficulty recruiting people who can walk and chew gum at the same time. He has surrounded himself with a subpar group group of of people, both in the cabinet um, and inside, inside the White House itself. These guys are checked out. They are engaged in a constant war with each other. All of them hate one another. Mm-hmm. I mean, the constant leaking between Jared Kushner and John Kelly and between Kellyanne and every other human being on earth and and Sarah Sanders sniping at other people. And these guys are all, this is the leakiest White House we've seen in ages. I, I have a rule over time that's been proven pretty, pretty accurate. Good White Houses leak on purpose. Mm-hmm. Bad White Houses and unhappy White Houses leak all the time. This White House, this golden age of journalism we're in is because everyone in the White House from the president on down is leaking to dog other people around them. It is a, I mean, the the wave of leaks that will come out after this election of everyone blaming Trump, they're going to be inside the White House saying he can't, he's, he doesn't get it. He's blowing this. It's, it's, it's going to hurt him in 2020 if he talks about a red wave, which was his big conceit for weeks and weeks on end. There'll be a red wave. We're going to gain seats in the House. It's going to be great. We're going to have the best day ever. I'm the king of this. Didn't quite work out that way. Huh. But so all these folks inside the White House, they're constantly having their egos just ground up. They're constantly forced to go out and and adopt public positions that they know are lies, mm-hmm. that they know are anathema, that they know will end up hurting their reputations in the long run. And and yet, you know, the and ones they do it. The ones who the ones who are stuck there are stuck there because 
you know, you wouldn't hire these people to manage a Waffle House. So you mentioned uh, Jared and Ivanka. What's with the nepotism and bringing the family in? It just seems so at odds with everything we've learned about how do you ethically run a uh, a business. But remember, the business of Trump is not government mm-hmm. or patriotism or loyalty to the country or service to the American people. The business of Trump is Trump. And he doesn't he skipped that part in the constitution where we don't do titles of royalty uh-huh. because he seriously considers himself to be some sort of, you know, uh, royal figure above the law, above the constitution. And his, and the Royal family idea is something that is clearly playing out here. Huh. You have his fans who say things like, well, after Trump runs, then Don Jr. will run, then Ivanka will run, and then Eric will run, and then Barron will run in the near in the far, far future. And they can't the, be serious, the, can they? You know, the cult-like devotion to this guy is one of the most shocking elements of Trumpism. To I me. agree. It, 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 it's it amazing. Is. I mean, look, I love me some George W. or George H.W. Bush. I love me some George Bush. I love me some Jeb Bush. Bush family's been great to me, and I, I've been loyal back. But you know what? Uh, if one of them said to me, hey, go drink this poison Kool-Aid, I wouldn't do it. Right. But Trump could stack people up like Jonestown, and they would do it. They, the, his, his line about shoot somebody on Fifth Avenue had the disadvantage for our country of being entirely true. That, that's shocking. Um, let me shift gears a little bit and ask you about the um, unspoken elephant in the room the past month. The Mueller uh, investigation continues silently to grind forward. Mm-hmm. My best guess is, uh, let me rephrase that. If I had to pick somebody, assuming I was running a sort of sketchy business, mm-hmm. and there perhaps might have been some Russian involvement, and maybe there's some money laundering, if I had to pick the one guy I didn't want investigating me, it would pretty much be Robert Mueller. This guy was built to investigate Trump. How does this play out? The last two months... Robert Mueller made a very conscious decision to become a hunter submarine. Uh He's under the water. He's listening. He's working. He knows where the targets are. Just because you don't see him doesn't mean he doesn't see you. Mm -hmm. This is a guy with a reputation for being methodical, for being diligent, for driving home, for for getting to the X of any operation. Right. And he's got resources both on the intelligence side, on on the financial investigatory side, and, and on the legal side, that the clown show around Donald Trump has never taken seriously and never understood. And what happened with the election, Robert Mueller is protected now. Uh-huh. That Trump can't just idly fire Robert Mueller. And what happens if he does? It's the apocalypse politically. I mean, this that you end up with the House Oversight Committee, hires Robert Mueller, and recapitulates the investigation and says, go ahead. Now, they can also ask for Robert Mueller to provide them that report. Which would not have happened in a Which would not have happened with Devin Nunez and and, and Uh Goodlatte and those guys. It would never have happened. It would never have seen the light of day. There will be political consequences now, and there is no defense operation where Nunez or Rohrbacher or Jordan or any of these these guys, you know, like team obstruction, I call them. Right. There's no further ability for them now that they're not chairman to go out there and filibuster on the you know in these hearings to blast Robert Mueller and to blow up the FBI and to go and attack and assault an investigation 
and and to look away from the involvement of Russia and trying to manipulate our elections. So what's going to happen is the the shock and awe effect of of f- further indictments mm-hmm. is going to cause a sort of accelerating cycle. Trump will get more and more crazed. By the way, I think Jeff Sessions is gone within a week. Um, I think he's outy. Isn't it? Well, I was going to say normally isn't the second term when when there's a turnover. But you're just saying post election he's right, gone. Right. Post, post midterms. Yeah, post midterms. I think he's gone because Trump recognizes that the 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 most dangerous window of time for him uh, going forward is between right now and when the Democrats take power. Uh-huh. His actions in the next. 90 days are going to be very, very telling. Um, and it's going to be very, very dangerous for this country in a, uh, 60 days. Excuse me. Um, so so assume he he asks Sessions to resign. Mm-hmm. If uh, Session resigns, he could do an interim appointment. But if Sessions says, nope, you got to fire me. Oh, he's going to, you know, he's going to have to fire Sessions. Uh-huh. But I think Sessions will go. I think he will. He will go in the next 60 days right. before before the Democrats uh, new Absolutely. legislative session, and, and I will say this also: I know for I know the White House has been shopping for a new AG, mm-hmm. and I know. Well, you could see uh, Lindsey Graham kissing up for that uh, slot. Yeah, but I, I, the the person that's rumored very heavily right now is Pam Bondi, the former AG of Florida, who who by the way, if, when you look at the Florida foreclosure debacle, correct, it was as corrupt as any public yeah, official she, ever. I, I've t- spoken to. Trump-friendly Republicans in the Senate uh-huh. who are begging him, do not name her. It's going to open an amazing she can of cannot, She cannot be confirmed. Do not name her. So if he tries to name Pam Bondi as the AG, I think there are gonna be some, there's going to be some very, very hard pushback, even from his own side. Um, but but the, the narrow window between now and when the Democrats are— What's the date of that? The 21st. Uh-huh. Um, the, the narrow window— between now and then is going to be a fact a, a very risky time but i think he may buy himself more trouble if he does i mean look the guy's already like knocking on the door of obstruction charges every single right. day so if he tries to play shenanigans between now and the time the democrats have oversight ability it's going to be a real uh it's going to be a really ugly moment and i think one of the things about the democrats taking over that people are underestimating they're not as dumb as they look they're not going to race. Adam Schiff is pretty pretty yeah. savvy guy. They're not. They're going to. They're not going to race to impeach Donald Trump. This is a death of a thousand cuts. Right. This isn't That's an right. easy. You know, we're trying to throw the president out of office. This is going to be. We need your taxes now. We need to talk about your business dealings. We need to talk about, um, you know, your your dealings with Russia and Russian banks and Russian oligarchs. We need to talk about your meetings with the Russians. We need to talk about your communication with them. We need to talk about Cambridge Analytica and Steve Bannon and the relation. They're going to just peel this thing back one little one little strip at a time and it's going to make Trump crazy. Is he dangerous when he's crazy? Is he more dangerous, I should say? I, I think Trump is a danger to the rule of law in this country mm-hmm. and I think there have been very few checks on him so far and I think he grew accustomed to being unaccountable. And when people are accustomed to being unaccountable, they are dangerous. Huh. Now, You've been on Bill Maher's show, right? A couple times. And and Maher thinks that when it's time for him to go, he's not going to leave. I don't buy into that. I think the mechanism of between the Secret Service and the military and the police, it's going to be, I don't care what you say, Grandpa, here's, here's the door. I could be wrong, but I doubt it. That would be a hell of a moment 
Mm-hmm. That would be a hell of a constitutional test in this country. The most severe constitutional test we've had since Nixon. And and it is a real question about whether Trump um, – You just look, hypothesize that he's impeached for whatever mm-hmm. purposes. You know, they find video of a Putin giving him a sack of money and, you know, let's just hypothesize he gets impeached. Uh-huh. It is going to be tough to drag him out of that out of that room. I think Bill's right about that. But I think at the end, but he'll be impeached, not convicted, and so why correct, bother? Correct. He in the end, the impeachment thing has always been a unicorn for Democrats. I agree. Okay, let's suppose they they impeach him in the House. They could do it tomorrow. So what? You know, they could do it. You got how you get to two thirds in the Senate? You, you, you don't. You don't even get cl- to fifty percent of the no, Senate. You don't. Why, so why alienate the people? Correct. That's why I think they're going to go and investigate and tear things open slowly. And it's going to look make him is, unelectable in. This 2020. is an administration that is lavishly corrupt. I mean, they, lavishly corrupt. That's they, a good phrase. They are. They are. You know. They are so overt about it. I mean, look like the coal guys. They basically took a shopping list to the White House right. with prices next to the things they wanted. Oh well, you get a million dollars if you if you take care of this regulation, and we'll give a, we'll give the inaugural committee half a million if you'll do this for this company. These guys. It's just even, brazen. They aren't even pretending. Huh. And so, and what about the emollients clause? That's got to be an issue that comes up. It it should be an issue that comes up, and it will be, I think. And that is, I think, by the way, one of the venues where Donald Trump's taxes become revealed. Uh huh. Because how do you know? We've got to have an answer on that, and the only way we can really get that answer, because you know, Donald Trump's financial statements are always sort of mythical creatures, right? You know, it's it's man bear pig. It's whatever he thinks up at that moment. You know, I'm worth $10 billion because I believe my brand is worth $7 billion. Right. Okay. Yeah. Right. $8 billion in goodwill doesn't brand, count. Brand equity is different than what you think it is, Donald. Um, but, you know, so I think the emolument stuff where this guy is obviously profiting off of lobbyists. And look, I know a ton of lobbyists in D.C. They're friends. and, and Foreign I'm, countries going to the these, Trump's hotels and The et fact that they now go to the Trump hotel to have all of their meetings and all of their events and they pay a gigantic premium, a gigantic premium across the street at the Willard, which is not exactly the Motel 6. Right. Everything in D.C. now has to go through the Trump properties. And so, uh, you know, it, that's it's like such small crappy grift, but it's are, grift. I mean, it's just scummy. are they going to have to disgorge those profits? I don't know if they have to disgorge them, but I think they have to disclose them, and I think that's why you get to the taxes under the emoluments that, thing. That's amazing. I know I don't have you forever, so let me get to my favorite questions and uh, our speed round. Let's plow through this. Let's do it. What's the most important thing people don't know about Rick Wilson? They don't know that I am a hell of a cook. Oh, really? <laughs> Quite fascinating. Who are some of your early mentors? Uh, some of my early mentors, um, well, this guy named Dick Cheney. Uh, really? He was the Secretary of Defense. I mean, you, you learned and, and so much from vice him. president. And, well, and vice president later. Um, there was a, a guy that I also worked with a lot named Donald Rice. He was the Secretary of the Air Force, one of the most brilliant, considered policy guys I ever met in my career. Um and and I've been I've been very fortunate over the years to learn from great people in New York. Uh, Ray Harding, who was the chairman of the New York Liberal Party, which is Ray used to say, it's neither liberal nor a party. It's my political machine. <laughs> uh, Ray taught me more about New York politics than any human being on Earth. But I, let, I've been very fortunate over the years. Since you're here discussing your book, let's talk about books. What are some of your favorite books, be they politics or what have you? Well, um, I'm going to say my one of my favorite books um, 
is is Cryptonomicon by Neil Stevenson. Sure. Which is about money and uh, encryption and war. Uh, I'm a I'm a I'm a big fan of of overly complicated stuff like that. Um, I'm, I was a classically educated guy, so I, I read a lot of I read a lot of ancient history. Mm-hmm. Um, Give us a name. Well, Livy and and Plutarch and Tacitus. Oh, so you're talking about real classic? Yeah. Well, yes, like actual. Um, but for a modern version, modern interpretation, that Michael Grant's very good about a lot of that stuff. Um, I read voraciously, mm-hmm. so I, my my house is way too full of books. So there there are worse things to have uh, filling up your house. Um, so what are you excited about right now? What what? And I I know that's a silly question because I know what you're excited about. I'm excited about the fact that America is under a big stress test right now, mm-hmm. and and you know, I'm excited to watch how our resilience plays itself out this time. I am really fundamentally optimistic about the country. I think Trump is a terrible, destructive, horrible figure in our in our politics and our society. But I also think that there have been, you know, our immune system. It takes a while to kick in sometimes, but it always does in the end. Mm-hmm. And and I, I feel it starting to, to reshape where we're going politically in the country. And I'm also excited about the sort of, you know, uh, modern elements of, of, you know, the bad sides of social media we've seen now. But I think it's also providing this new organizing tool and 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 this new way of for people to remediate themselves into effective political groups. So tell us about a time you failed and what you learned from the experience. Sure, it failed in 2016. I I did everything I could to stop Donald Trump. I helped run Evan McMullen's presidential campaign as an independent. Mm-hmm. We absolutely crashed and burned. It was horrifying. What I learned was the two party system is really strong that tribal affinity is really strong and you have to bring a real a game to those things to, to break that mold. And, and you know, you learn more from the campaigns you lose and the campaigns you win. Isn't it always that way? It's you always, always, you always way. learn from failure. What do you do for fun? You mentioned cooking. What else do you um, do? I hunt, I fly. Uh, I like to be out on the you water. Have a pilot's license. I do have a pilot's license. Mm-hmm. Um, and what do you fly? Uh, Piper Archer. Okay. So just a little thing, but um, I, I, I get out as much as I can on the water, which I love. I love my. I've got uh, a bunch of hunting dogs, German short hair pointers, and uh, and and luckily, since I live in Florida, I love the chainsaw things because uh, we have a lot of trees down after the big storms lately. So we came very close to getting a Griffon German short haired. Uh, mm. They're just spectacular the dogs. German short hairs are an amazing dog. They're great hunting dogs in the field. They're great family dogs at you home. You just have to run them. You do have to run them. I have a Portuguese water dog. It's oh, I love thing. them. They're so fantastic. In the pool, out on the boat, yep. constantly. Yep. Yep. Um, all right, so a millennial comes up to you and says, I'm interested in a career in, in uh, political consulting. What sort of advice would you give them? Um, the first advice I would give them is go volunteer on a campaign to do the crappiest job you can find. Mm-hmm. Drive. You know, I started out with Connie Mack as, a, as an advanced kid, as a driver. That was how I started in this thing. And huh. I ended up meeting and getting to work for the president, the future president of the United States, because I had hustle and, you know, being willing to go out and do the, and do the scut work and the crap jobs and the stuff that you don't, you know, they get this sort of wrong impression from watching television where there's these 24 year olds in perfect suits in the white house being, you know, senior officials, you got to go do the hard work. And politics is one of those few things in this country where it doesn't matter where you went to school You've got to go out and be in the field and bust your tail and you've got to go do the things that you put up the stupid yard signs and go deal with the with the cranky volunteers and go knock the doors. 
you don't get into this into this tribe of consulting unless you go and do those things and and it's all it's it's there's no shortcut to it Make, makes sense and our final question what do you know about the world of politics today you wish you knew 30 or so years ago people lie to pollsters all the time really yes that's a that they is, lie to pollsters all the time that is not well understood by a lot of folks. no and it's it's clearer and clearer all the time how much they're a bunch of damn liars <laughs> amazing <laughs> i love it i i love i love trying to to like get to the tr- the nut of a question with with polling but you've got to just factor that in these days quite quite astonishing we have been speaking with rick wilson he is the author of the new york times bestseller everything trump touches dies If you enjoy this conversation, well, look up an inch or down an inch on Apple iTunes and you can see any of our other. Let's uh, round it up uh, to the size of Trump's inaugural uh, address and call it 250 previous conversations over the past five years. We love your comments, feedback and suggestions. Write to us at mibpodcast at Bloomberg.net. You can check out my daily column on Bloomberg.com. Follow me on Twitter at Ritholtz. I would be remiss if I did not thank the crack staff that helps put these conversations together each week. Michael Batnick is my head of research. Taylor Riggs is our booker slash producer. I'm Barry Ritholtz. You've been listening to Masters in Business on Bloomberg Radio. Bloomberg Radio.